Hello, my name is Autumn Guillot, and this is Working Girls History, a podcast of and for the working girl. Today on Working Girls History, we are talking about fellowship applications, specifically the Rhodes and also the Marshall Scholarship for postgraduate study. And I have in with me a fellow URI alum, Madison Cook Hines. Hello. Yes, that is my name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So why don't you say a little bit about yourself and and what led you to to apply for these prestigious awards? Uh, I graduated from URI with a degree in theater, directing, and stage management. Um, And I've done a lot of directing since graduating, which wasn't all that long ago. Um, and I'm also interested in playwriting. So I was, I, I was partially just interested in the British tradition of theater making, which is really text-based, whereas in the U.S. we just want to see pretty things. And so I, I, you know, I ended up finding the fellowship office at URI. And both the Marshall and the Rhodes offered kind of differently excellent opportunities to learn more. The Marshall, I, the Marshall was an opportunity to study both playwriting and also environmental studies and sort of write very topical plays was my hope. Um, whereas the Rhodes offers, a, 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 there's a program at Oxford that's actually a BA that's a really foundational program um, in literature that I was very excited about. Cool. And uh, just for, you know, my own justification for being here and talking to you about this. Um, I applied for Rhodes this year. I graduated in May of 2018. So this was my last year to, you know, give a stab at it because I aged out um, this year. So you only have until you're like 23 to apply for the Rhodes. And I was applying doing Uh, I really wanted more foundational backgrounds, more deeper research in history. Specifically, I was looking at the MPhil and economic and social history, which ties in a lot with the themes that I talk about with working girls history. So I was hoping to continue that research and really dive deep. Um, We're speaking to you as finalists for the roads. Yes. So... We can tell you how to not win it. <laughs> we sure can. <laughs> We're experts. Um, and you also went through the Marshall process. I and I, I'm going to ask you about that because I never did. It's sure. a lot of work. It's a different. It, it's a very different vibe. For yeah. sure. Um, I wanted to start with Rhodes just for a second. And maybe you can speak to this, too, with the Marshall. I think it's really important when you're applying for these fellowships. They're very old and you're applying to sometimes very old institutions. The road specifically directs you to Oxford, which of course is internationally renowned as one of the oldest and best universities. Um, Cambridge is also something that comes up a lot with the the Marshall. And the Rhodes Scholarship itself comes from the will and testament of Cecil or Cecil Rhodes. I've been saying Cecil. I've been saying Cecil. His own background is kind of sketchy. He is a very uncomfortable history to study. 
Uh, he was an imperialist. He founded Rhodesia, which then became split into two different countries in the continent of Africa. He made his fortune uh, diamond mining, which has its own ethical concerns, and founded De Beers Diamonds. He made his money off the backs of forced labor, colonization, and really just manipulating international law because at that point in time, the UK was dictating any international laws, especially when it came to the continent of Africa. But one of the good things we might say that comes from his legacy is this opportunity of fully funded education at Oxford University. He wanted this to be a place where you could educate young colonists in the universities of the UK so they wouldn't come out with anti-British sentiments. And even more specifically, he wanted to um, unite the English speakers of the world. And it was coming out of this idea that if you could get all of the, read white here, by the way, if you could get all of the English speakers in one base of education, Oxford, we could save all the social ills of the world. Of course, these, the original intention of these solutions was not solutions which involved the people who were maybe at risk or vulnerable or being abused. It was more of a top-down, patriarchal, paternalistic, white man's burden sort of view of saving the world. This is the legacy you're dealing with. And of course, the scholarship itself was created in 1901. So think about that too. The Rhodes has changed its vibe. Now it is on its face more diverse. This year, over 50% of the winners are first-generation American citizens. We're only speaking from the American end, too, because this includes a couple of other post-colonial countries like Canada, Australia, and South Africa. And there are some like global and yeah, at large. They have a lot more, more countries around the world than they used to, for sure. Yeah, so it has expanded geographically and ex- expanded in the amount of people and who it will accept. Of course, originally it was only for men and... Athletic men. <laughs> athletic men. Um, at that, he literally said that he didn't want the winners to be too bookish. Um, <laughs> he said, my desire being that the students who shall be elected to the scholarship shall not be merely bookworms. I direct that the election of a student to the scholarship shall be had to his literary and scholarly attainments, his fondness and success in manly outdoor sports, (laughs) such as cricket and football and the like, his qualities of manhood, truth, courage, devotion to duty, and his exhibition during school days of moral force and character. So it's changed from its original intention, its original picture of who a Rhodes Scholar would be. Absolutely. Uh, Last year, they had their most female class, 21 female winners. This year, they've awarded their first transgender female and uh, two non-binary persons. So it is shifting. However, I will still say it is lacking in economic diversity and it is lacking in institutional diversity. None of this is to discourage anyone from applying. It's just, it's good to have the facts. facts, Yeah. Yeah. 
Would you say that's kind of reflected in the Marshall as well? In terms of uh, the institutional diversity? Yeah. I, I get the sense that there's, a, that there's a little bit more, that it's a little bit broader, um, which maybe just comes from the, I think the Rhodes is more well-known than the Marshall as a general rule, at least in the United States. And because you're not all applying to study at, at Oxford or Cambridge necessarily, but you can study at any UK institution. And so I think that as a result of broader diversity of sort of the, the proposed programs, you get a little bit more diversity in where the students are coming from. But I, I don't have stats to back myself up there. <laughs> so <laughs> Well, feeling is also important, too. Yeah. And again, this is like not to discourage anybody. No, apply for sure. But just, yeah. Yeah, just now, I mean, Rhodes has a complicated history. Oxford and Cambridge have complicated histories, very uncomfortable histories and uncomfortable alumni that come from those institutions. Just be cognizant of it and... Know that, I don't know, I fully believe that you can only change from within, not without. So if you disagree with some of the legacies or images of these prestigious institutions and awards, but you're still qualified, apply and know that you can be a part of a changing and shifting culture. Make the legacy better. So applying. Yes, indeed. No, this is also like having all the facts in front of you. The roads and the Marshall, to a degree, are very much bent in favor of Ivy League students. This year, over half of the Rhodes scholarships were uh, awarded to Ivy students, actually just four schools, Harvard getting the most, then Yale, then MIT, then Princeton. And then the rest were tier two schools, like some military, U.S. Naval Academy, and in the Midwest, lots of state schools. (laughs) Be aware of your panel. If we're speaking as Rhode Islanders who participated in the Massachusetts panel, which is most notoriously traditional, this year they picked a Harvard and a Yale, fully qualified, not taking away from the person. extraordinary people. Just but noting that's, that's Harvard, weird. Yale. Yeah. The year before that, I believe, was Harvard and MIT. And the year before that was, again, I think, Harvard and Yale. So know that. Like, just be aware. And then know what makes you different, what makes you special. Right. Play all the cards at your disposal. And the Ivy kids go through a pressure cooker. This is good and bad. They do. Um It's bad for you if you're not an Ivy League student because these students have been not only aware of the fellowships and the opportunities they present since probably their freshman year of university, but preparing and shaping their own CVs around those scholarships since probably they were 18 years old. What's good for you, though, is that if you aren't going through this pressure cooker situation, And if you aren't building your entire life around winning a Rhodes or a Marshall or, for that sake, a Fulbright or whatever prestigious scholarship that you can be applying for on school that you could be applying for, what you have is authenticity. Like you're Mm -hmm. in that room simply because everything you're doing by your own merit and your own choice qualified you for these awards. Right. And I think that... Rhodes um, criteria that energy to pursue one's talents to the fullest 
is nicely suited to that particular side of things, which is if you propel yourself because you want to propel yourself, there's there's something to be said for that. Also, timing is everything. <laughs> Again, like a lot of the students who have known that they want to apply for these awards for a very long time, they might start the process a full year before the application is due. That doesn't mean you have to. I applied in or decided I was going to apply in late August. Yep. And the applications are due in October. Yes, indeed. I also started my process extraordinarily late for the roads. I also know winners. So if you're saying, well, you just made it to the... I know winners who's, who decided to apply late. Um, I know winners who also decided to apply like a full year and a half before and mm-hmm. were thinking about essays already. Again, this is just information and figure out where you fit on this scale. Definitely don't decide in September and then apply for that October. Maybe. That's what I did. <laughs> um, well, you already had the Marshall, though, underway. It's true. Yeah. No, preparing for that's actually a good point, which is that with the roads, you're not allowed to get any help on your essay anymore. It has to be 100% your work and nobody else can have influenced it. And so having experience working on other scholarship applications under the guidance of an office give you some sort of context and practice so that when you go to write an essay by yourself, you don't feel lost. But don't think that you can cheat the system entirely. Oh, no. Because they're different personalities. Oh, there, it was a very different essay. But I, I felt like I had essay writing skills to bring to it that I didn't have before. So I think we should start with letters. Sure. Because that's where you as an applicant should start. Yes, indeed. Um, (laughs) For the Marshall, what was your like kind of thought process with letters of recommendation? For the Marshall, you needed four. And I, I was applying to a playwriting program, among other things. So I reached out to a playwriting professor that I had because I wanted people that could speak to my field. I also had a mentor who knew me best out of all the people in my academic world. And so I reached out to her. And then I ended up I ended up asking her out of a list of people I could ask who she thought might be the best because she's had experience applying for these kind of fellowships before. And so she offered me some guidance there ended up choosing somebody else who worked in the department and uh, my boss at a theater company that I'm an apprentice, where I'm an apprentice. And so I had that outside of academia letter, which helped a lot, I think. That's kind of along the same thought process that I was having with the road. For the road specifically, you need between six and eight letters. Yes, or five and eight, because I had five. (laughs) That's right, I had six, sorry. That's why I'm like, did I do the bare minimum or did I do one more? (laughs) I did the bare minimum. Um, So... Again, you don't have to have right. the eight, the maximum amount of letters. You don't. And I know winners who had five, actually, mm-hmm. and, and I know winners who had eight. So mm-hmm. it's whoever can speak the most to you as a person right? and from different angles. And you have to think kind of strategically, I think, here. The roads you also need, in addition to four academic writers, you need at least one more character reference. Yes. And this is where you have to make sure your letters are in balance with your other application materials. Mm -hmm. So I decided my narrative, my theme of my personal essay was going to be sending around a recent political campaign I'd been working on and how that affected my research interests. And so I had the 
a supervisor of mine from that campaign write a letter on my behalf. And what she could do was corroborate a lot of the points in my personal essay. Mm-hmm. And then I also reached out to someone I actually didn't know that well, who I'd only known in very limited professional circumstances, but she was an elected official who sponsored the bill that I was working towards. And so I met her. I had coffee with her three times to just kind of be like, this is who I am. You have seen me in these rooms. I know you've, like, we have had previous conversations at the State House before. Like, you, you know who I am on the surface, but, like, this is my motivation for this scholarship and this piece of education that I'm now pursuing. And that gave her a fuller picture rather than her writing, like, some formulaic, I'm a senator, this person's okay, and <laughs> they should win this scholarship. Right. I think you probably did the same thing where you had your letter writers highlight. Yeah, various aspects. At my my boss, who he focused on, you know, my, my non-academic work, and, and I, I directed several staged readings. Apparently, there were people who had Broadway credits. I didn't know that till I read his letter, That so which I'm glad I didn't know. And talking about my, like, professional work, whereas my mentor talked more about why, fundamentally, I want to do things. And then for the roads, I asked an additional person who, one of my teachers, he was also somebody whose class I had just shown up to for a year because I couldn't sign up for it. And he also worked at the theater that I worked at post-graduation, so he had kind of a holistic. What you really have, another tool at your disposal at the letter writing stage, is your fellowship advisor. Yes. Because usually, you're not, obviously, in most letter of recommendation situations, you are not supposed to see the letter that is being submitted on your behalf. They want to no. know that you didn't write your own no. <laughs> letter of recommendation, which people do. That's awful. However, Rose is very diligent about the fact that you did not touch these letters. So right. they're blind submissions, as they should be, in my oh, opinion. absolutely. But your fellowship advisor, it doesn't count in the whole blindness part. Your fellowship advisor can read the letters and can say something like, oh, this is all great, but maybe this one paragraph should be moved up or cut out entirely. Or can you just say one line about this special project or how it made you feel? So what they can do is, because writing doesn't happen in a vacuum, they can act as a little bit of an editor or a sounding board for your letter writers. Right. So make sure if your letter writers are not in academia or not in the institution where your fellowship advisor is, Make sure that they're connected because I had to do that for my two character references. I made sure they were connected mm-hmm. with Kathleen Marr of the URI Fellowship yes. Office. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Let's do a little plug there. <laughs> and the other thing, again, timing. Give your letter mm-hmm. writers time. Yes. Yes, indeed. As much as humanly possible. One of my recommenders, the great Cheryl Foster. Oh. She is a URI superstar. She has a very standard policy with every single one of her students that she takes a full month to write a letter of recommendation. Mm. And she does it very specifically because she takes a lot of care and attention to how she recommends people. This is also why these are like the best letters that you're going to get. She's not going to turn it over in a night and write a formulaic like, this person got an A in my course (laughs) and they showed up for office hours because they care and they're just generally pleasant and <laughs> wear close-toed shoes in the winter. Like, I don't, <laughs> it's going to be more personal. It's going to be more in-depth. And I will plug and put a link up in the bios to a piece that Cheryl Foster, along with two other 
people if you are a philosophy department wrote about the labor, the unpaid labor that goes into, into writing letter, letter writing. Letter yeah. It's because it, it's a part of their job, but it's not a part of their job as professors. Right. Um, and they don't get recognition for it either in any way. So another thing I'll say here, and this is like kind of an after you've submitted thing, I write thank you notes. Oh, yes. Me too. Thank you emails are fine. But notes are better. Notes are always better. Yeah, really put in some time because they put in so much time. And they don't have to do this. Right. There's nothing in their contract saying that they have to write you a letter of recommendation. This is a good a time as any to take a break. I've broken up this special episode into three parts. In part two, Madison and I discuss writing personal essays for prestigious awards. Madison is currently assistant directing a show at the GAM Theater in Warwick, Rhode Island, called Admissions. It is very relevant to the work of high-stakes applications. It previews January 16th, and you can buy tickets at thegamtheater.org. I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you are a University of Rhode Island student or alum and are interested in fellowships such as the Rhodes and the Marshall, reach out to Kathleen Marr at the URI Office of National Fellowships and Academic Opportunities. Follow the office on Twitter at URI underscore ONF and on Facebook. Be sure to follow Working Girls History on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like and subscribe to get all our episodes and tell your friends. Join us next time and be on the lookout for more Working Girls Wednesdays. Working Girls History was recorded in the podcasting studio at Wachir Writers Club, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators. Visit them online at wachirclub.org or stop by club headquarters at 160 Westminster Street in downtown Providence. Wachir Writers Club is not responsible for any content produced in the club studio. Thank you.